At approximately 5.15 p.m. on May 10th in 1967, three boys ages 11, 13, and 14 explore a cave near their house in Mark Twain's hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. Brothers Billy Hogue, Joel Hogue, and friend Craig Dow are never seen again. It is now 52 years later. This is their story. And the beat goes on, Chris. And the beat goes on. No, I better not. I better not say. We tried that the first episode. It didn't work. It didn't go over well. <laughs> it's the only comment on the Facebook. Love your podcast. Stop singing. Our only one star review came one from, <laughs> from my singing. <laughs> Five stars on the podcast. One star on Chris's singing. <laughs> Wasn't good. Well, we want to welcome the uh, people have spoken. The people have spoken. <laughs> And you have a chance to speak on our discussion group on the Facebook. So if you're not liking us and you haven't gone on there to subscribe to the podcast and rate us on iTunes and Apple, looks like we got a lot of Spotify players out there. Yeah. Our show's about 25% Spotify. So I'm glad we got on that network. Yeah. A lot of fun. Mention the Facebook page. You know, we're adding a lot of people to our discussion group and a lot of great discussions going on there. So if you haven't hit that little ad, go in and become part of the discussion group. Well, first like our Facebook page as yeah. always, and then go to the discussion group so you can get in on the conversation. Yeah. And as soon as you basically click that little ad button, we, do we approve that one? Yeah. You have to get approved to get in there, but you're so, going to get approved. Yeah. We're going to, you know, unless you guys get reckless on there and funny and, you know, troll. Yep. That's why we wanted to do a discussion group. We try to keep our Facebook pages open so anybody has the advice. We like that we kind of curtailed it to the discussion group because, you know, Facebook pages are more about, for us, information. Like, hey, there's a new mm -hmm. episode. This is some cool stuff we found, like the Clemens thing we talked about, the signature on the wall last episode. Yes. So thank you so much for subscribing. Thank you so much for the discussions we have had in the past. And hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more of those because we do need that. Remember, I will, I will point this out again. The public solves crime. The public solves cases. This comes from almost every police department. A lot of times they have this weird misconception that they don't want any help from the public. That is not the truth. Any true crime detective or cold case detective, that's the first place they start is the people that were around. And they re-interview people, and they're doing a great job. But you also have to understand there's 120,000 cold cases. 1% are ever solved. Me and Chris are trying to do our damnedest to find out what happened to these boys uh, before the family ends up leaving us too. Yeah. And so all your help is needed and necessary. If you have a theory, put it in the discussion group. With that said, we're getting right into the dig part two. Yeah, when we left you off in the last episode, we talked about them calling out to William Karras. The, he's the man that knows the caves. He's done searches before. He's had some unsuccessful searches that we'll talk about in future episodes, but he's the foremost experts in this field of, of trying to find uh, lost people. And he's the president of the SSA, also known as the Speleological I Society really like, of America. I like how this works. <laughs> I say SSA. You're like, you I know can't sing and you can't say that word. 
These are things that we're learning from our episodes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Let's get right into it. Let's talk yes. about Karis on the ground. Yes. So uh, he uh, sent a report in the last episode we talked about. Our sent a telegraph that says, hey, I'm going to be in Quincy uh, around 10.22 p.m. Uh, Quincy again, 20 miles to the north of Hannibal. And he arrives uh, He arrives around that time. He is escorted by a police convoy from Quincy Airport to Hannibal. He gets to Hannibal around 11.30 on May 11th. So we're still just out. Outside of, actually just outside of that 24 hour period so it's been about 30 hours since they've been missing now and uh, he's finally on the ground and uh, go is ahead. the police escort necessary it's Quincy in 1967 no it's not okay but it is but it happens and, and I guess that really goes to show how how much uh, of a uh, a thing this is Spectacle. for the community yeah. uh, is that they they this this guy who's just a cave guy he's a splunker and, and yeah. he, they have to give him a police escort to to come in so uh yeah so he comes in uh 11 he first meets with conway christensen who is the uh president of hertz uh he's the st louis chapter pretty much of the of rescue teams for caving and uh, he's also the vice president of the ssa which karis is the president of which we've talked about uh they have their meeting they get together and talk and um but before the you want to say and i don't know exactly how this works again going off of karis's report um he talks with christensen but uh other reports say that uh, karis met with the media the minute he gets on the ground he meets with the media that seems more like williams past too i think in some respect i mean william was kind of this media showboater he as we'll get into an entire episode kind of dedicated to Karis, I think you start to see that what is this guy's aim? Right. Well, and it's funny too, because again, this is coming from other reports, not obviously not the Karis report, but it's the, the one of the, the cavers, the volunteers, and his name was actually Stan sides. He explained that Karis and members of his team get this. were repelling down a bluff for a cameraman for KSDK TV in St. Louis. Repelling down a bluff. Yep. It's just once again, once again, the police envoy repel. Watch how we repel. Like yeah. this becomes a sensationalized story already. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think the news is crazy today, it's never not been. It's it's about getting ratings and yeah. they want to show, well, this is just boring staring at a cave wall. Yeah. Let's get these guys repelling. I can just see the producer up there. Yeah, and you can see in, in the in the way that Karis is, you can be when you hear that that a reporter go, "Hey, can you guys like repel down a wall or something?" And he's like, "That's a great idea. Let's do it." You know, right. he he wants that recognition. Just make as sure much. we have the focus of me. Yeah. So, uh, but we'll get in again. We've talked about that a few times. We'll get into all of that uh, more in depth later on. But speaking of Karis, we we need to talk about some of the things in his reports. That is uh, a little bit of contradiction, Frankie, um, from what we have, and so we'll let, we'll dig into this and then kind of analyze it a little bit. So your con, so the contradictions are coming from the actual report versus the written word in newspaper. Uh, actually, it's coming from the specifics are coming from again going back to John Wingate's book. Okay, um, and the reason why, and you know, sometimes you know writers will have their own outlook or their own take we have our own take and we mm-hmm. we talk about that uh however these are actual interviews and quotes from people that were there 
Um, that gives a little more credence to maybe some contradictions. Again, that's where it differs from what William Karras says in his report compared to what this eyewitness testimony actually written and quoted by people on the ground at that point in time say. And also, I mean, Wingate does his own interviews too. And maybe that is where some of the contradictions are coming in too. Mm -hmm. He's talking to people, you know, 50 years later. Right. Like your memory is not that good. Very good. Very good point. So. Uh, so let's get into the first contradiction. And and we hit on this, a touch on the, the last episode, but kind of put the nail in the coffin here. Uh, during this period, when he first arrived, uh, a review of all the facts concerning the boys revealed that no one, no one had investigated any place other than Murphy's cave. That is a direct quote from William Karras's report. That's really interesting. Yes, because we just learned in the last episode from the emergency squad, the Marion County Emergency Squad, we just learned from them that they split up and half of them were in Murphy's Cave and half of them were heading to the cutout. So, uh, again, contradictions, there's your first one, because the Marion County Rescue Squad said that they, in interviews that we mentioned, that they searched that road cut area, even had been miles away from that area. They've searched other areas. Yeah, I mean, you had Bill Bridges there. Yes. Now, this is one of two things. Right. This is William Karras trying to say, my investigation is the only one that counts. Mm. And he's saying that from a journalistic standpoint, which there's journalistic liberties taken in John Wingate's book. John Wingate was a journalist. So drawing intrigue to story, making it a page turner can also, you know, you always look at like when you see a movie, right? And you look at the book and everybody's always like, oh, the book was better. Yeah. And the reason that is, is because some things aren't as important that need to be reported. When we're looking at this, we don't have that choice. We have to look at it from a non-conjecture standpoint. We have to look at all the angles. You mentioned Bolting House. That's an interesting name. That'll mm-hmm. come up again. The Bolting House name is is definitely still in our review because as these seasons go and our episodes are longer, you start to notice all these colorful characters coming into play. Like, well, who are these people, mm-hmm. right? So from other contradictions, I mean, you have the Captain Charles Webster. Yeah, and I, step back for a second. When you talked about angles, there is one thing. I, and let me reread this real quick. Karras, and this is the report from Karras, his direct quote says, During this period, a review of all facts concerning the boys revealed that no one had investigated any place other than Murphy's Cave. Now, there is another angle, speaking of angles, you can take this, and that is that he could be referring to not searching beyond the cave systems. Gotcha. So they're, you know, give him a, a, a little shadow of the doubt kind of situation. Sure. Maybe that's what he meant. It didn't come off that way, but that's what he could have meant. Now, the problem with that is <laughs> going to Charles Webster. Right. Is that we already know, according to Charles Webster, that he talked, uh, he was the captain, uh, actually, I think at that point in time, he was an investigator for the Hannibal Police Department, that they already initiated a door-to-door search of the area prior to William Karras coming in. So that actually contradicts what he just said. You know, even my uh, rebuttal of maybe that's what he meant, that's not true either because uh, the Hannibal Police Department was already working, going door-to-door, and they even provided the Marion County Rescue Squad with a map of all the sewage systems that were, were in that area. So just to give them an extra out. So, again, contradictions, maybe not that Karras... I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to go from there. It's just, it's it's weird. I don't know why he would put that in his report. Also, I mean, the cops are the first ones called. So mm-hmm. naturally they're going to investigate. Maybe he's looking at it from a caving standpoint. 
you yeah. know, that these guys are doing door to door searches. That's not important when I'm here. I'm not here to do door to door. I'm here to be in a cave. Right. And so I guess from his standpoint, he's looking at people that are non qualified, right? We talked about the rescue squads. We talked about the drills are doing these guys. You even said yourself, their proficiency is not in caves. It's mm-hmm. more like, you know, dragging rivers and looking for lost hunters. And, and so maybe he's also, I mean, we always want to approach this as an unbiased view. I mean, yes, maybe Karis was a scout for cameras, but at the same time, I'm sure he's wanting to have this resolved. He wants to be successful. 100%. I mean, he just starts this thing. I mean, we can get into Schroeder's pants cave in another episode with William Karras. And if you want to look up that on your own, you can, and then be ready for that episode because that will really intrigue you about Mr. Karras and who he is. Absolutely. But you're going to go into another discrepancy here that I find the John Sanders thing is is just bizarre. Yeah, so Lynn, let's do that. Uh, on Friday morning, in the report that Karis put out, Karis instructed John Sanders, he's an SSA board member, to find a man who was head of the local CB club. Ironically, Pete Strobe, which I apologize, I mispronounced this. I named uh, Strobe earlier in a couple episodes ago. Uh, it's Strobe, so I apologize for that. But Pete Strobe was uh, in the crowd, and he overheard Karis's request. And Pete, ironically enough, was the president of the Beacon Light CB Club, and he immediately offered his services to William Karis. The rescue squad, by the way, which ended up being called the rescue control, I'm sorry, uh, was established at the Southside Christian Church. And that's another misspoken I said. I said First Christian Church last episode. I meant Southside Christian Church. And we'll continue to correct ourselves yeah. as we go further. And there's a lot of details. So if you're if you're catching stuff and you live right there, once again, that's what those discussion yes. groups are for. Like, hey, guys, like it's said this way, especially somebody's last name. I know all about that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I have a very long last name. So, yeah. Now, it's interesting, even though I messed up with the last, what at church I called it, the reason the what we were talking about last episode was about somebody that already set up equipment there. Correct. And that was Bolting House. That was Bolting House. Uh, Bolting House was the one that got his, his uh, ham radio equipment, brought it in. But again, this goes into why Harris said, hey, we need communications equipment when it was already established at the at the church. Why does he need to bring in additional equipment? Now there is, you know, let's throw the rebuttal out there real quick. The equipment that he requested, uh, and just to be specific, it was Lafayette Electronics in New York for a five watts Dynacom five walkie-talkie system. And these walkie-talkie systems were supposedly the only ones that would work satisfactorily underground. And then the Beacon Light CB Club, they also provided a couple base stations and a couple, a dozen or so mobile units. He asked for this equipment, but Bolting House already brought equipment. Again, there's a contradiction there. So, from the outset, too, I mean, it, it possibly could be that you know how much you're talking about a major electronics company at the time. The, those walkie-talkies, in and of itself, I think they even put a price tag on them, mm-hmm. and they were pretty high for 1967, and they lent them for free. And so, when you look at what they brought versus what Bolting House might yeah. have had, it's probably like it's kind of obsolete. Thanks for helping. Yeah. Hey, do you want to help with the search? Because that's what does happen. Yeah. Bolting House is later found. 
searching in the caves. Yes. And he is a brave person for doing that. He served in the Air Force. This is nothing no. to, to bolting. No, it's just, it, it's interesting at this point in time. Right. About what, again, and you, you kind of, ta- you kind of touched on it. The big wigs in town now. So I, I don't need your radio shack right. walkie talk. Yeah. So that's that I do get that aspect. So there's a couple contradictions and that's just a few of them uh, compared to what we're seeing from the interviews of people after the fact and, and what's in Karis's report. But I just wanted to give you kind of a cookie cutter of what that was no that's perfect so let's move on uh, so expanding the search is the, the next highlight here yes and so i've read through this chris i i really want you to kind of go an absurd amount of people yes absurd. from the national guards come out i mean i'm talking about absurd once again this is 1967 we've got helicopters flying in we've got technological communications coming from new york We've got people on the ground. We got base stations. We got 100 searches. We got now 250 National Guardsmen. Yep. Tell me about this. The governor, who is um, uh, Warren Hearns at the time, he actually orders 250 of those National Guardsmen to arrive. And they came in Hannibal. They were in Hannibal Friday afternoon. So we're looking again, Wednesday at 515 was when the boys were last seen. Within 42 hours, you've got 250 National Guardsmen. You're within the first 48. That's huge. And this it, ground search, man. And not, wow. a, and not only to mention, so you got the 250 in guardsmen, you got 20 with the volunteers of the rescue squad, you got another 10 or 15 coming from Karis's and, and Christensen's group. I mean, you're talking over 300 people searching for three boys within the first 48 hours now. Nuts. Yes. To give you a little more specifics, the mm-hmm. guardsmen. They were brought in to start a ground search, and they covered seven square miles of the area, and they checked anything from barns, shacks, sheds, anything that possibly could have the boys in. So the guardsmen were responsible for those areas. Now, also, while they were doing this ground search, they also were searching for other potential caves along the way as well. Incredible. Yes. They also, uh, again, some of the expanded search beyond the National Guardsmen, all the trains that had left Hannibal from 4 p.m. on Wednesday, May 10th, also were searched regardless of where they were in the country. So say a train took off from Hannibal at uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and at this point you're looking at 40 hours down the road. They're probably close to, say, Louisiana, the state of Louisiana by now. Uh, so they actually sent out to those people and said, search these trains. So all those trains throughout the country that were in Hannibal at that time were searched. Amazing, because once again, going back to my point, not last episode, but I believe episode 4, where I pointed out nobody went to check the church. (laughs) (laughs) Checking trains. Nobody wanted to see if the boys actually ever made it to church. Yeah. There's that. We assume that they didn't (laughs) make it to the church, though. (laughs) But again, that's an assumption. You you could be onto something. Uh, They, by the way, with the trains, they searched, uh, they continued that search every day for a few weeks after that. So even trains that were leaving Hannibal after May 10th were still being searched just in case something would happen. Maybe they would jump on a train or something like that after the fact. And now the sensationalism comes, right? The TV, the radio, yeah. trying to make the specter on the news. And so within the first 48, you know, just to recap, Chris, mm-hmm. right? You've got expert William Karras down there from the SSA. You've got Conway Christensen. you got Conway Christensen's. You have a rescue squad. You have 250 guardsmen. You have the police department. You've got everybody searching for these kids. Because when you look at this case, and maybe from the first couple episodes, oh, well, maybe they're not in the case. Maybe they're seven square miles. 
Can that's I? a huge area. That's a huge. Just do it on your computer. <laughs> it's huge. So if you're thinking like, oh, they were hanging out in a tree or they got lost somewhere else, it's very tough to look at it from that perspective. That's an uh, interesting thought too. You had the Mississippi River. Chances are they didn't do a lot of searching on the Illinois side. So that seven square miles was seven square miles of Missouri. Correct. So you're going pretty far out. Now that is an interesting thought we need to look into. Fluvia is still in my mind, bro. That, that river. Yeah. But even on the other side, you know, Mark yes. Twain got on a boat and floated to an Island. And so it's a possibility that, that you maybe that's what we need to look into. Anyway, that's for another episode. Yeah. Because we did mention Quincy's 20 miles. Quincy's yes. also in Illinois. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, you're, you literally Hannibal's right on, on the river uh so you know there's that possibility too but uh, we'll get into that later on you talked about the tv uh the radio the media there was an appeal that was made over those broadcast uh, types directing anyone that saw or spoke to the boys in the last five days to contact the rescue control which the i kind of hit that a little bit rescue control was pretty much headquarters. That was where all the action took place. That's where the communications equipment was. That's where the volunteers checked in and out at. That's where they pretty much everybody went to, which again was the Southside Christian Church. Uh, a tip line was set up. It received hundreds of calls uh, within a few hours of it being publicly known. The tips, uh, they included some reports of seeing the boys, also reports uh, from property owners who said, hey, I got a cave on my property. So that was interesting. Uh, found a lot more caves. And with each report, Christensen would take a group and actually search that cave. So as soon as that phone call came in, they're like, all right, Bob, Jim, Leroy, let's go. We're going to go search that cave. They would end up searching hundreds, quote, hundreds of caves in the Hannibal area. And that when they went to search one cave, guess what? Two more showed up. So they yep. found multiples even when they were searching. And uh, the report was quoted as saying, one could almost say... The Hannibal area was just one huge cave riddled piece of acreage. <laughs> so just one big cave. Which we've talked about that. 7,300 cave systems in Missouri. I mean, the minute you start stumbling on these things, you're right by the river too. And we talk about this a lot with natural springs, caves. Yeah, now you have a, a you know, you have this chat, this open chat. And of course, just like online today, you're going to get your trolls. You're going to get your conspiracy theorists. You're going to get some very strange letters that we will get into those condolence letters. Mm-hmm. But they're not all condolence letters. There's a lot of like theories. And so when you look at stuff like this, it's easy to imagine, oh, yeah, there's a cave on mine. He probably came out here. Yeah. Take this for example, too. If, if you're close to your, your internet or close to Google or whatever, we just did this a little while ago, is go do a search for like Illinois mined caves or mined claims. And we were searching, just looking for something else. And I, you heard me say, Oh my gosh, I didn't know all these caves existed. And yep. there's a there within, you know, within 20 miles of where I grew up, there was like 35 of these mine shafts and I never knew those existed. Exactly. It's amazing how many of those places that are out there that we just we're oblivious to we don't know those things so uh yeah definitely check that out it was an eye-opener for me so even do it in your your area i would say oh, that would be really fun we are adding one more thing to the story here though uh, chris the uh mcdonald aircraft corporation gets involved yeah but now we have the guardsmen now we got the aircrafts involved 
Yeah, so Conway Christensen, who we've talked about a few times, he works for McDonnell Aircraft Corporation. Uh, he and Earl Barnes, an employee of Conductron, Missouri, who's a subsidiary of McDonnell, arranged to have an F-4 Phantom Jet make aerial surveys of the area. The photos were taken and are available in the report, but they're just black and white, blurry, you can't see anything. Uh, so we actually do, we, we've been in contact, we were waiting on this. Hopefully by the, by the time that you hear this, we'll have it on our Facebook page and our gallery. We do have a colored or at least a more clear image of that coming. So we will get that posted because I think it's very important that they, they took aerial photos of the 79 cut just right. to show you what it looks like, which I think for us is going to be very important. But once we get those, we've been in contact with the National Speleological. You got it. All right, society. Um, I mean, when we went out there, me and you just droned it. Yeah, you yeah. Saw how easy it was. Yeah, and if yeah. you guys have watched that, the videos on there that was Shift Films. We did all that droning and stuff. So they didn't have that technology that we have today. It, yeah. It's just amazing that and I'm just waiting, Chris. One day I'll just be droning around, playing around, and I find a body. And that, yeah, that no, oof. yeah, that would be interesting. It's also reported that Karis and Barnes, who we talked about with getting the Phantom Jet, they also they're both pilots. They ended up taking multiple times their own plane or renting a plane and searching the outskirts of the area to see if they missed anything. Do want to go back? One thing I did miss too was that. Uh, in the report, going back to the hotline, it said in some cases, two or more persons reported seeing the boys in several places at the same time. Yeah. And that, we we talked about that in episode four too. There's a lot of groups of boys in the two to four range hanging out. So I'm not saying all these kids look alike, but if you're asking me if I saw three kids going to a cave at this point, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. You know, and so that's why I think there's just overlap with people trying, wanting to be informative and to help. There's also a side of me that just believes that a lot of people knew the Hogue Boys, knew the knew the Dow Boys. You know, from that perspective, everybody's always looking for their 15 minutes. I don't think that that's different in 1967. Mm-hmm. This is where the podcast, this episode, gets a little bit chilling. And we're moving into a topic, basically the last part. This will kind of end our show. But we did want to leave a little bit of a cliffhanger even more for you guys to be encouraged for two weeks, do your own research, get into discussion groups, which is why we're going every two weeks. We want to see what people's feedback are. Mm-hmm. And now that we've kind of built that with our with our subscribers and our audience, this part I think is going to really make the discussion bloom. Yeah. Uh, I, let's, uh, so we have an outline of each one of our episodes that we do, and, and literally, and I knew this since we before we started, what the names of these next two outlined items are going to be called is The Troublemaker and The Mystery Man. So just to give you a heads up, the, the Karras report's about 30, 35 pages. William Karras spends a full three pages in the report. 10%, 10%. of the report is spent on The Troublemaker and The Mystery Man. Unbelievable. So let's get into it. Yeah. So we'll start with the troublemaker. Around the 10th day of searching, Karis was asked to talk to a man who was creating some concerns among the persons at Murphy's Cave. At one point, this man claimed to be with the Mark Twain rescue squad, and he told that to the our underground rescue team. And then he claimed to Hurt that he was part of the Mark Twain team. So he told one that he was part of one and the other he was part of the other. Yeah, when in reality he wasn't part of any of them, was he? No. Uh, The man stated to Karis when he did uh, talk to him that he found a lower section 
uh, in Murphy's Cave, what we're talking about, which uh, by this time had over 1,000 man hours of searching done in it. And he said, hey, I found a lower section nobody's seen. So Karis asked the man to tell him where it was. The area described was well known to Karis and Christensen. Karis said he knew the area. He's like, there's nothing there. And the man got upset and stormed off. He's like, screw you, I'm leaving. Unbelievable. Yeah. Later on, he convinced the Mark Twain Rescue Squad to initiate an excavation of this area. This is the troublemaker. The man then got, once that happened, he's, he went to the local newspaper. And he told them that he saw the bodies of the boys in the cave itself, and the excavation would uncover them. I'm going to stop you right there. This is what I'm talking <laughs> about, man. Like, this throws a wrench into what people should actually be focused on, right? You have this guy coming in like a, like a loon saying that he's seen the bodies. He's seen the boys on the ground floor of Murphy's Cave, you know, in the separate lower. And now he's going to newspapers, disturbing it. Why is he doing all this? Yeah. So during the excavation, the Mark Twain rescue squad was suddenly hit with a strange odor. And the immediately, the searchers assumed the odor was of the boys. And unfortunately, what happened was that assumption spread throughout town like wildfire. So that's unfortunate. So you, you have this guy that's claim, you know, claiming he saw him. Then you have this... I run this unfortunate incident of this odor come around and then, then everybody's like, Oh no, we found them. That's not good. Well, upon further investigation ended up that the odor had just been sewage seepage, which they had uncovered during the excavation process. And you know, that sounds weird, but the County coroner comes in and says, yeah, that's what it is. So the, according to the report, that's, that's what the smell was. Now, going back again to the troublemaker, not to be outdone, the man then went to the city judge and he said that he knew that the boys were half buried in Murphy's cave. This began, you know, you don't, you don't go to a a judge and and make a weird claim like that because the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to be like, let's find out who this guy is. And that's what they did. So the uh, judge had uh, an investigation of the man. After review, all the data, the conclusion, uh, the man had not seen the boys and the bodies, and it was just not possible. So long story short, Karis, not wanting to ignore any leads, convinced the guy to show him where the bodies were that he said to the the judge. The guy said nearly four hours of searching. They didn't find anything. So again, he just makes another story up to, to be a problem. There's a lot to pick apart there. Yes. And I'm, I'm going to back you up because I'm one of those audience listeners right now. And I listen to a lot of these Missing Morning podcasts. And I always have all these huge hand questions and raising. Because we're young and we're in our infancy, now's the time to add to those discussion groups so we can get in, in front of it. And my question right here is when you read the book, when you read the book, that smell and the way it's described, and I'm not going to tell you how I know, but the way he describes rotting flesh of a human is true. Because I've smelt it. The sweet smell? It's like rotting fruit. Mm. It's very different from an animal. The fact that the sickeningly sweet smell keeps coming up with the one... Now, I know the corner and everything was cleared, but in John's book, there's somebody else in there. Yeah, I'll tell you. Woody St. Clair, who we've talked about before, he's part of the Mark Twain Rescue Squad, Emergency Squad. He said that uh, he smelled He smelled it. and he, he also, over the years would say and he's quoted as saying over the years we've recovered a lot of bodies and the smell of human decomposition is sickening sweet odor 
And that's what I smelled the day at Murphy's Cave. And also, uh, we'll give it to John. John and his dad visited that day that that happened. And it's interesting. John actually brings up in his book that the people around the cave smelled it. So they actually smelled it outside the cave that day. It's so interesting to me that that wasn't dived down. I understand it came from a mystery man, right? That mm-hmm. the crazy person or whatever, the, the troublemaker, as you've labeled him. You, you know, I think that there's just this, I don't know. I can I can go down rabbit holes with that one. I just, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how much, and I'll get into it in another episode maybe, but I still to this day cannot eat cantaloupe. Really? Yeah. Huh. Because that's what I always smell. Mm. I smell a dead body. With cantaloupe, especially if cantaloupe is a day or two old in your fridge and you smell it, I guarantee you that's exactly that rotting sweet smell like a like a fruit rotting on a table. Now, is is the smell different from a like an animal decomposition? 100 percent. Which is body chemistry, which is interesting because in in the book, it says when the coroner and the funeral director were called to the scene, both men believed the odor was from most likely a dog or a raccoon. Yeah, you see, there's different levels of odor, mm-hmm. right? There's even a smell where you have like the sulfur, which is like a, like an egg, like a rotten mm-hmm. egg smell. But then you also have like mothballs, hmm. which is a very apparent smell too. It's different stages of the smell of rotting de- decomposition. That's fresh. The fruit is fresh. Mm-hmm. And then it eventually goes off and fades, and it becomes more like this musk, more like the, the rotting corpse of a body of an animal. But right when they're saying 10 days into it, I mean, I don't know. I, I still feel that from an investigative standpoint, I, I'd, I'd want to investigate that. I got to write myself a note real quick there. Yeah. I <laughs> you mean, know, you, can read, you can read all about him. Any corners report. I mean, everything we did on the Elsa thing, too, like you go into that, the, you know, any funeral director will tell you that, too. Mm-hmm. It's a weird smell. I mean, his my other partner Jeremy's wife worked for a funeral home. Mm. You know, so and we're not and, and just to say we're not making any assumptions no. there whatsoever. It, but it is it's very interesting, and, and you don't want to give give false hope. And, and we'll talk about next episode of of how careful the volunteers and the searchers were uh, because they didn't want to give that false hope. So you know, you have some event like that happen. It's it's interesting. It, it's interesting that, and we did we did. And I had I just showed you my calendar, Frankie. It, this happened approximately on uh, May twentieth, and the search, uh, which we'll talk about later, was still going on for a while after this. Yes, yeah, it was. So um, it wasn't like that they were like, oh well, we didn't. We have this smell. We we didn't we didn't find anything it was sewage and then like a day later like okay we're calling the investigation right that's what we were looking yeah, for it's yeah like, and that wasn't the case at all. great i came down here and they're, they're dead yeah you know so, so i mean yeah that's that's conjecture that's speculation i mean but right. you know we're not trying to say that something sinister or salacious has happened around at the same time you know it's something that i would want to further investigate and i probably will but yeah. there's one last segment here you have, Chris, and that is the mystery man, which is going to bring a lot to the discussion group. Yeah. So uh, we had the troublemaker, and now we have the mystery man, and I, I could we can go into a whole story about this, but um, really, it's only one paragraph that Karis has, and the paragraph that he has in the report is so strong. I'm just going to read you the paragraph. Go ahead, That's because fine. it's great. So so here's the the here's the reports. 
The other person remains a mystery. He appeared and disappeared as a, a will of the wisp. He planted false clues and led the searchers on dozen or more unnecessary trips. On a number of occasions, he appeared in the early hours of the morning, standing high on the hill near the highway caves, looking down on the workers. Who he was or where he came from, we never were able to discover. Why he committed some of these strange acts to throw us off our search, we shall probably never know. You could devote a half dozen pages to just this one man, but they would all boil down to one thing. He wasn't seeking personal publicity, but he was disrupting the search as we believe he wanted to. And then they never follow up. Nope. Makes my skin crawl. Yeah. Because right there, why are you misdirecting people? Now, in some cases, when you read about true crime and serial killers, and this is one we'll get into it because we're going to start kind of opening up these nests, they always come back to the crime scene. Always. Really? They want the spotlight. They want to misdirect. This is the case that's happening out in Missing Moore Murray. It's been going on for a while. I suspect one person that's still involved with the case because it doesn't make any sense why he's involved, especially an outsider, especially something that's not related. Like, why are you creating misdirection? Why are you creating the loss of things? And so when you look at this case and this mystery man, even in the book, John brings it up in the book, it is something that really fascinates me that not even the, the police, the 250 National Guardsmen, anybody said, wait a minute, who is this guy? Let's bring him in for questioning. They brought in the other guy. The judge went through the, the troublemaker. But the guy that's trying to misdirect people that's not looking for publicity, interesting. He's looking for publicity. It's the vanity aspect of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's the narcissist aspect of it. It's the sociopathic aspect of it. I don't care if the public knows I confused you. I know that I confused you. Wow. And that's why he's going to the top. That's that's You gave me chills when you just said that. That's, that's crazy. I, I just, I, again, let me reread that last line. He wasn't seeking personal publicity, but he was disrupting the search as we believe he wanted to. That is your killer. <laughs> wow. Sociopathic. It's, 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 you know, my degree um, in the study that I've done in socio, sociology, right, is a study of human behavior, which is what I do for a living, human behavior, human interaction. When, when you look at that statement from Karis, it is chilling. It should bring you to a point in the episode where we have to say goodbye mm -hmm. until next episode. But I wanted to leave you guys with that two weeks of discussion. You know, I want to hear from my true crime people too. You know, you've asked the question about the shoes and somebody responded. What are your thoughts about a, the troublemaker B, the mystery man who would do such a thing. This is somebody that flirts with the idea of being caught. That brings him rise and suspicion that somebody is so focused into the investigation of finding kids in the cave that he has them all on a wild goose chase. And to further this, what he's going to do is misdirect them where they're already misdirected. This is a clue. This is a person. And if anybody's out there, if anybody's listening to this, I don't care if you're in your 70s or 80s, if you remember this person's face, we're going to post some pictures of some serial killers that we believe might have been in that area. One was responsible for the death of Adam Walsh. From all of us here at Lost Boys of Hannibal Podcast, I'm Frankie Campbelletta. I'm Chris Ketters. We'll be seeing you.
Zone. 